This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by Clara Cook. Hi Duncan. And we're also joined by Clara Cook. (laughs) There's only one of me, there can be only one. (laughs) Oh, what a shame. I was hoping we were going to get two for the price of one here. (laughs) Clara Cook and her, her, the second Clara Cook, the inferior Clara Cook, or the evil Clara Cook, or it could have been evil could be a clone. Could yeah. it be a better Clara Cook? A Clara Cook that is better than me at podcasting? That's the worry, I think, isn't it? That's, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's this sort of big question, you know, how would you feel about meeting yourself? Um, I, I sort of, growing up, I always used to think it'd be quite fun to meet myself. Increasingly, as I get older, I think it would be horrifying. Uh, <laughs> I'm more in the kind of Riker camp than the data camp. But um, but I think it's interesting. I wonder if it has something to do with your sense of, you know, self-esteem or, <laughs> or kind of self, self-image self somehow. But yeah, I think that the, the worst possible thing would be the idea that your other self is, you know, is doing things that you hadn't quite managed to do or is kind of outperforming you somehow. Yeah, or has chosen to make bad decisions, you know, mm-hmm. like as in like the other, you know, another version of you has chosen to commit a criminal act or I don't know, right. be unfaithful to their partner or or mm. just, you know, I mean, maybe there's like Clara Cook out there who's chosen to work as an investment banker in the city. I mean, <laughs> I'd be horrified if, someone, if I chose to do that. Yeah, I mean, as in, I mean, I don't think I could do that because I'm not like good at maths, but um you know, maybe that there's there's also there's like an evil version of you out there who's screwing people over and committing crimes and just genuinely generally like being a bit of a a bastard. That's quite mm. upsetting. The idea that you choose the wrong path, you know. And it, do, do you have that in you? Is this like a darkness that you have in you that's come out in your doppelganger? Um, you know, is it already there and you just haven't exploited it or got involved? Or yeah, like you said. Is your double better than you? <laughs> Interesting. I feel we've gone quite deep, quite <laughs> quite fast. We, we and as usual, it's in. gone dark, think, hasn't it? And it's gone dark. It's gone dark <laughs> straight away. But I think it's interesting, uh, obviously, for the benefit of the listeners, yes, we're talking about doubles. We're talking about doppelgangers. Uh, we're talking about those kind of uncanny others, um, of which there are many in Star Trek and in science fiction more generally, I'd say, and in literature uh, to some extent. But I think it's true. I think it... The reason probably that we're so drawn to these stories is they raise these very interesting questions around identity, around who, you know, who you think of yourself as being. How do you see yourself and and what are the kind of parameters of that, in a sense? Um, And a lot of the kind of eeriness that comes with these stories of doubles, um, which is often how they play out in Star Trek, I think comes down to just that thing of not, you know, not being used to seeing yourself even. I mean... I don't know about you. I always find it very, if I take a selfie on my phone, uh, and then it takes the photo like a mirror. And then when you click the button, 
it flips it and suddenly it's it's like inverted and that's what you actually look like as opposed to the mirror version of yourself which is what you think you look like there's always this sort of moment of like oh that doesn't you know that doesn't look right that doesn't look like me and then but in fact it is so i suppose there's that weird sense of you're seeing something that almost you you aren't supposed to see when you see a double yeah and like throughout sort of you know history and and like obviously the 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 doppelganger has a long standing history in culture in like lots of different cultures as well like i was just um (coughs) pardon me just saying to you before this podcast i uh before we started recording that i'd been watching uh, a crime series on television in which there was a storyline about a double and it was set in ireland and they called it they called it a fetch and in like irish um sort of folklore there is this idea of this um person that's not you but looks just like you that has been you've been replaced with by some sort of magical means normally through you know like folklore like fairies in the woods or something have replaced you with someone that looks just like you a fetch um and obviously in star trek we see the whole idea of a golem you know which is another kind of double that comes from other parts Mm -hmm. of of the world um and this whole sort of long history of doubles there's not really um what's the word is is never really positive in any of these stories in history or or in legend meeting your double is always a ominous or sinister event and in some cases uh in some stories meeting your double will result in your your death or mm. basically your life being ruined it's never like oh i've got someone that looks just like me or you know, like, oh, like I've got an imaginary friend that is basically me or, oh, I found my long lost twin. It's not really any of that. It's more like beware of the person in the shadows who looks just like you, who's coming to steal your life or yeah. coming coming to replace you. Uh, so I think it's a very sinister idea in itself. Um, and then so when it's put into the context of science fiction or Star Trek, um, it's genuine, generally something sinister. It's a mirror universe or a, a clone or something that an alien's done or a transporter malfunction or something. It's not like I've discovered I've got, uh, you know. My uh, long lost brother. Yeah, or I've had a clone <laughs> yeah. made of me and we get on really well together and me and the clone yeah. are going to support each other through life. It's not that. It's like I am unique. I'm an individual. I don't want another copy of me out there. Mm. So. Although I think it's interesting because I was just um, watching uh, for my sins Star Trek Nemesis in preparation for this because I sort of felt uh, much as I have issues with that film, I, I kind of <laughs> had to at least take a, a look at it. And I think the stuff about doubles in that is quite interesting because obviously you have both Picard and Data find a double almost at the exact same time. And Picard goes through that whole anguished uh sort of identity crisis in some ways you you know am i capable of the terrible things that my clone seems to be capable of are we the same person or aren't we data is just very laid back about it he's just like um yeah i'm gonna give him all my memories i'm gonna you you know uh basically give everything of mine to him i mean there's often this theme of like the double stealing stuff from you stealing your identity becoming an imposter i mean uh in the the original uh novel or novella um Dostoevsky novella, The Double, that's literally what happens. The Double is a kind of uh, identity thief. Um, Data, totally unconcerned about that, um, and just says to Picard, look, uh, he's not me. B4 is different, you know, different person. I can give him everything I have. It doesn't affect me any in any way. You know, I, I'm still myself. Um, totally kind of 
unfazed by it. And I think that's interesting. Whereas, yeah, these, you know, human characters certainly typically there's a lot of angst. There's a lot of anguish. Obviously, you know, the two Rikers, there's immediate animosity. Um, but th- th- there is also this kind of thematically, there's often this association with death. One of them has to die for the other to live. I mean, literally, even in the case of Nemesis, Shinzon wants Picard's DNA to save his own life. And Picard is going to, you know, be kind of um, drained uh, out of existence, I think, in the process. So there is that kind of sense that the, the, the double is a sort of um, a threat in that way. And it, it's interesting, going back to Freud wrote um, a famous essay called uh, On the Uncanny. Uh, and doubles are one of the many uncan- manifestations of the uncanny that he talks about um, in that essay. And one of the things that he says about the uncanny is in German, the, the uncanny is the unheimlich and the, and the, uh, which means I think sort of the unfamiliar essentially. But one of the things he says is that that word contains the heimlich, the familiar, um, uh, within it. So there's this kind of sense that the double is something that is both very familiar, you know, it's literally our kind of reflection. It's our shadow. It's what we see. Uh, it's what's always with us, what's very close to us and kind of intimately bound up in us um and yet also it's something kind of foreign and strange and he has an interesting line given what you were saying clara he says from having become sorry he says from having been an assurance of immortality he becomes the ghastly harbinger of death so there's this idea that the double kind of uh presages destruction of the of the personality somehow it's really interesting you should say that because i felt like that was quite so in some of the cases like when you talk about data in Nemesis um, and his double, um, in some of the cases, the double is superior to you. You know, the double's mm-hmm. stronger or in, you know, in Dostoevsky's novella, the double is like more charming and smarter and just e- so socially more ease. And so people like him more and want to spend time with him more um, and want to work with him and everything. Whereas they don't want to work with the original um, or they don't like the original. The original's awkward and difficult. But in the case of, um, and in the case of Nemesis, that's not kind of the same situation because Data's double is inferior to him. He needs Data's mm-hmm. information and Data's memories and stuff in order to be as successful as Data. And in the cases of like second chances as well with Riker and Will Riker and Thomas Riker, double the Riker, um, the you know, Thomas Riker literally is like lower rank, you know, and he hasn't had the experiences and the, you know, even though you think, well, he's more successful in his relationship with Troy, he's not really. Uh, Will Riker's going to remain on the Enterprise and be with Troy and we know eventually he's going to marry her. Um, and Thomas Riker's probably going to end his days in a Cardassian jail or dying, you know, in the Dominion War. And Thomas Riker, he's, 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 you know, he he loses loses at the poker game to Will, and Thomas Riker he doesn't have the mended relationship with their father that Will Riker does. He's a more junior rank. He's inferior in lots of ways because of the fact that he hasn't had these eight years of experience that Will Riker has, being not trapped on a planet. And in the whole sort of familiar and unfamiliar, that made me think of. In Star Trek, there's stories where we see the original, I want to say like the prime original person experiencing a doppelganger, but we also see what it's like to be the doppelganger. 
and experiencing being an inferior or even sometimes a superior copy to the original. And in the case of Second Chances, we see a lot of stuff from Thomas Riker's point of view. But in the cases of Whispers, thinking back to what you said about Freud, like the familiar and the unfamiliar kind of mixed together. And what makes the unfamiliar familiar what makes it unfamiliar unfamiliar is that it has an element of familiar familiarity in it in um the ds9 episode whispers in season two i think it is episode 14 the whole episode is from the point of view of the doppelganger it's o'brien's clone we don't know that obviously for most of the episode but at the end of the episode we realize that it's o'brien's clone that we've been following the entire episode not o'brien himself and the thing that's unfamiliar in that situation is how everyone's treating him but the surroundings and the environment are familiar. Like the station's familiar, his wife is familiar, his friends and his co-workers are familiar, but it's the way they're treating him that's unfamiliar. Exactly. They, they, it's as if they're all imposters, isn't it? Yeah. That's what, because we see it from his point of view, it feels as if everyone has been replaced somehow. But in fact, you're right, he's the one who's, who's not who he thinks he is. Yeah. And it is very chilling. I mean, even you just talking about it, it's uh, the... It's horrifying. It's horrifying. And that's one of the things. It's really horrifying. Yeah, that's one of the things that's horrible about a doppelganger is that, like, the whole concept of doppelganger isn't just like that you're going to meet someone just like you. Um, and how you're in your relationship to them and how the, how you relate to yourself after that experience. But it's also that everyone else in your life is also going to have this other you. And you really kind of want to be like the only you in your life to everyone, right? Like, I, you know, you want to be like, the only partner to your partner, like, well, unless you're in a polyamorous relationship, but that's a different situation. <laughs> you, you really want to be the only parent to your child or the only owner of your pet or the only friend to your friends, right? Like you want to be like purely Duncan or purely Clara, right? You don't want there to be like another Duncan that like, you know, your friends are like, hey, this other Duncan's slightly funnier than you are. And you're like, what? No, my friends are my friends. They're not his friends. Um, so and I think that's kind of a terrifying idea as well. Like that they could slide into your life and make connections with everyone that you're supposed to be connected to. Which we can identify to some extent with real life experiences. I mean, whether it's, you know, the new person who slides into a friendship group and starts kind of muscling in on your territory or you know a lot of people with siblings have these kind of feelings about their siblings who, who come in and maybe they're more successful or they're more confident or you know whatever it is we can sort of identify that and actually I mean going back to the you know the heavy hitting uh psychoanalysts Jung I think uh has this idea of shadows and shadow projections this idea that a lot of our relationships with other people are determined by sort of unconscious connections that we see between them and ourselves so sometimes you'll find um that someone for example uh, and i come across this in a, a different um from a different direction in some of the writing courses that i do i i because i run courses trying to get people to write about their own lives and i encourage them to think about people in their lives and um to try and sort of write them as complex characters and what that involves is identifying a mixture of kind of positive and negative traits and one of the exercises we do is Think about yourself uh, and some positive and some negative traits. Think about someone uh, you have a, essentially a good relationship with and think about both positive and also the negative traits. And then think about someone you have a bad relationship with. And again, think of both the positive and the negative. And one of the things I found quite interesting in that exercise is how often people discover that 
they actually share, for example, positive traits with the person that they can't stand uh, for some reason, or sometimes <laughs> negative traits. You know, there are, there are more links between you and the person that, that you have a problem with than you might want to admit. And I wonder whether that's almost on some level, they, they've become a sort of, a sort of doppelganger or a sort of, um, so, someone who, I think they talk about this in second chances, don't they? Someone who shows you things that you don't like about yourself that maybe you choose not to see most of the time. But I think there's, there's an interesting question. So there's this idea of kind of jealousy, you know, you're talking about that, the, the person who kind of muscles in and we get that with Will and Thomas Riker. Um, we get that with poor old Boimler on lower decks who literally, you know, gets demoted <laughs> because his, because of his double, uh, who gets to, you know, carry on, on the Titan and he goes back to the Cerritos. Although arguably, you know, the, the less successful one there gets the, the better experience in some ways. Um, so you've got this kind of social, uh, I suppose, issue that's to do with other people and how how do other people react to the other version of you often there's a romantic element there's a kind of uh, a love triangle i mean i'm thinking of the tv show farscape which brilliantly used the kind of double conceit by splitting its main character in two for the best part of a season really um and one of them ended up in a relationship with the woman that they were kind of in love with and the other one uh, didn't. And there was a lot of kind of, and, and then one of them died. And of course it was the, you know, the one that she got closer to died. And then there's this whole thing with the other one, you know, it kind of, it creates all this sort of soap opera drama and jealousy and kind of confusion over who's, you know, who are your feelings for? And, and also Fringe, we were talking beforehand, we've both been watching Fringe recently, a show where pretty much everyone uh, has a double and they're a, uh, terrible kind of love triangle implications for, you know, do you love the person that you think you do? And is is someone really who they say they are? And I think that's the other element of it is that maybe the threat of the double is that there is this kind of fear of, are people who they say they are? And O'Brien in that episode whispers, having that experience where it seems like everyone is kind of conspiring against him in a sense is not quite who they are supposed to be as in fact ultimately you know it turns out they are conspiring against him in effect it's just not for the reason he thinks it is it is this sort of terror of not knowing or not being able to trust those that you're close to and it reminds me in that context of um a brilliant book actually is a thriller called the third twin uh which is about exactly this topic of clones and doubles it's maybe a slight spoiler, but um, uh, it, it is basically a, a, about, you know, the title kind of gives it away, several copies of the same person. Um, and in that, the protagonist, so there's these various guys who all uh, look basically identical and they don't know each other and where have they come from, and, you know, what's the history. Um, but the protagonist is a woman who is in a relationship with one of these guys. Another one of them is a kind of, uh, I think, uh, you know, repeat sex offender, basically, and a murderer, I think, uh, a nasty, violent guy. But there's this kind of real danger of, you know, is she with her loving boyfriend or is it actually the imposter? Is it the kind of um, very much in the mould of the enemy within in in Star Trek terms? You know, which which Kirk is it? Is it the rapist Kirk or is it the kind of nice, friendly Kirk? And that kind of terror of suddenly not being sure if the person, you know, in your home or in your bed or whatever is who you thought they were, I think is something that, again, is, you know, to some extent we can relate to and understand outside the science fiction context. Um, and it's something that that is very chilling about these stories, potentially. And I guess it also calls into question, like, why 
you are the way you are, like nature versus nurture. Like, oh, yeah. so, so, you know, the idea that your doppelganger will look like you. But in a lot of these stories, I would say there's different types of doppelgangers, isn't there? So there are people who are like, you know, the stories about people who actually are clones of each other, you know, like Orphan Black or, or well, in French, they're not clones of each other. They're alternate universe counterparts. Okay, so there's clones, you know, there's like the same, t- there's different versions of the same Android when I'm thinking of like Picard or I'm thinking of, um, you know, the different 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 data and his brother Law, different, different datas. And then there is alternate universe characters so like you basically yourself but in, a, in an alternate universe um and then there's also um so star trek does a lot of the sort of science fictiony types of doubles you know there, there's like an alien imposter uh, imposter so like a shapeshifter and pose like posing as you physically um then there are clones like Wayon, obviously in dsd space nine but then there's the other type of doppelganger. And then, of course, obviously, there's biological twins, right? Which people would sometimes say doppelgangers, but they actually are obviously two separate individuals, but they are, they share so much of each other's DNA that they're identical, right? But then there's the other type of doppelganger, which is the doppelganger that's a much more of like a folklore um, idea, which is that this, a person that looks like you, acts like you, and talks like you, but is in no way connected to you. They're not biologically related to you. They aren't your clone. They're just some individuals that just by some freak twist of fate looks like you or could be you. Um, and you get less of that in, I think, in in modern fiction, I think, um, just because that seem, maybe seems like a more magical, fantastical idea. I don't know. And obviously you get less of that in science fiction because obviously science fiction, even though, you know, we have all the sort of crazy stuff that happens with Doctor Who and Star Trek and Star Wars and everything, but most science fiction has some, tries to have some element of science, science related to it, right? But I found that this idea that um, the more biological doppelganger, so someone who's a clone of you or a twin or whatever, um, I found the idea that that you could be different and they could be different from you, but not because necessarily of the nur- the nature aspect of it, but the nurture aspect of it. So like, I mean, cause you mentioned, you know, one twin is a pedophile or a serial killer. The other twin is this really wonderful person. There's cases like that in fringe where one alternate, I mean, there's an episode like that in the season four of fringe actually, where there's the guy in one universe is a good person and the, and his basic, basic counterpart in another universe is like a murderer. He's like the FBI profiler who understands psychopaths or whatever, yeah. isn't he? And then and the other one is, is the psychopath. It's yeah. the psychopath, yeah. And it's because one had this care, uh, caring upbringing, had this had this person who took care of him and, and gave him morals and had basically had a, had a sort of, they, I think they say in the episode, like an indelible um, effect on his soul. And the other one didn't have that person to to raise him and, and to give him you know, good ideas about the world and to, to love him. And so he grew up devoid of that and became this basically violent or bad person. Um, and in a way, the doppelganger kind of questions that, doesn't it? It sort of says, are you like this because you're like this? Like, you physically look like each other. That's nature, right? But the nurture part of it is, well, if you took a 
an exact replica of you and you stuck them in a different situation, would you make completely different decisions? Would you actually turn out to be like a mirror universe counterpart? You know, would you actually turn out to be this awful person? Um, and that's something that Star Trek does kind of explore with the alternate universes. It's interesting, I guess, with the kind of, yeah, I mean, there's also the sort of trope of the evil twin. I mean, you could say law is a doppelganger for data, uh, but in a very sort of basic, uh, sort of slightly hackneyed, tropey uh, kind of way. You have this idea of the kind of good twin and the evil twin, don't you? But I think it's interesting when you talk about nature versus nurture, there's then also this issue of kind of parenting and, you know, who has brought up these children if you if you have children separated at birth twins separated at birth or whatever then obviously the big question in the kind of nature nurture debate is you know what are the parents like how are they imprinting on their children and you could argue that on some level that the whole phenomenon of the doppelganger is partly about that idea of reproducing ourselves of creating someone who looks like us and not like us which is you know effectively what a biological child looks like um the sort of familiarity of that, but also potentially the strangeness of that. It made me think as well, there's a wonderful play, there's a play by Carol Churchill called A Number, um, which is about, it's a two-hander, two-actor play, quite short. Um, And it basically, one, one actor plays the father figure and the other actor plays the various sons of this same father who are all effectively clones of each other. Actually quite like, uh, yeah, with Brent Spiner effectively in Star Trek, you know, sort of playing all these roles. But it's a lot of, so, so it starts off in this quite sort of science fictiony realm of, of sort of asking these kind of existential, uh, questions and sort of trying to work out how did this happen and so on. But it gradually sort of becomes more about the father figure and his neglectful parenting and the mistakes that he's made and so on and the kind of generational trauma that's going on and that affects one child and not the other. So it's quite interesting because it kind of approaches that sort of sci-fi question, but in a very psychological way. And I guess that's part of the issue here is that you can approach this idea of the clone or the um, doppelganger or the, the double in terms of sort of psychological realism, uh, or you can approach it as a kind of literary device. And when you say, you know, these coincidences, um, I mean, it's true that you don't tend to get coincidental doubling in these kind of sci-fi stories. There's usually a, a reason and often a sinister reason for it. I don't think that idea has completely disappeared, though, because on Facebook, you see all the time these posts that are like, Oh my God, it's Daniel Radcliffe in 1852, or it's, you know, look, look, here's Madonna in, in a photo from 20 years before she was born or whatever. You know, you do see this kind of obsession with this idea that, um, that, that we have historical doubles. And I don't know about you. I mean, I've experienced even in the realm of kind of family history, my partner, Nula and I went, um, about 10 years ago to the United States because her biological grandfather uh, was an American who she'd never known. He died long before she was born and, and no one in her family uh, really had known him because her grandmother had remarried. Um, but I was really struck. We went and visited her great aunt, I think, in Florida, who's this very sweet old lady. Um, and she produced a photo of herself as a, as a young woman. And to me, she looked exactly like Nula. And that 
that freaked me out a bit because like here was this relative <laughs> she'd never met before or whatever and then she's like oh yes this was me you know 25 or something and I was like oh my god that looks exactly like you you know and obviously we do we do get this in families you know that that you know oh the the grandfather or the great-grandfather or whatever there's this kind of eerie resemblance but um I don't know I think there is something strange about that there is something almost there is something almost of the kind of immortality about that you know whether the 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 double presages death or or ongoing life somehow this idea that it, the same face can kind of reappear at different uh, moments over time um is quite an interesting one we get that in doctor who as well of course this idea that sometimes doctor who uh, you know, takes on a face that he's kind of encountered in the past. And I don't know, I mean, as we're recording, all these photos are leaking of David Tennant back on set and, you, you know, the old figures from Doctor Who returning and kind of raising these questions, you know, what's going on here? What, how, what, how is, um, all of this connected? And of course, he's a character, David Tennant's version of Doctor Who ended his story leaving a duplicate behind. Uh, so there was always the potential, I suppose, for more stories, not of the doctor version of that, but the kind of, um, you know, the, the, the more normal, <laughs> the mundane one who probably, uh, feels that the, the time traveling, uh, one in the magical, uh, you know, time and space machine is, is the one with the better job or the, you know, cooler lifestyle or whatever. I mean, it's interesting what you say about, well, so like several things that you said that kind of sparked, um, some thoughts so it's interesting what you say about um people being interested in doppelgangers even today and it's it's yeah obviously like you said like people in history who actually weirdly look like people today uh, and some of that could be quite striking because obviously photography in the past was quite different than photography to today right and they're wearing different costumes and different clothing and they look different and everything uh, but there's also websites out there where you can go and put upload a photo of yourself and other people will upload a photo of themselves and the website, like through some algorithm or whatever, will search for your doppelganger, mm-hmm. you know? So, and it's, it's, I think it's something like find your twin and it's not, they, they don't mean your biological twin. These aren't people, mm. I'm sure some people probably are looking for possible twins. I don't know. Um, but I think most people are looking for a doppelganger. I mean, it's, it's, it's billed as you could find your doppelganger, not your actual long lost twin. And one of the things that you mentioned about how, um, I'm not going to do it, obviously. But yeah, I mean, if you want to, any of our listeners want to go ahead and do it and then tell us about it, that's fine. I'm not going to. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But you also mentioned about the whole nature versus nurture, like parents, you know, different separated twins and stuff. There's a really good documentary, which I wanted to recommend to our listeners, which is really, really good called Three Identical Strangers. And I don't want to give too much away about the documentary because it's, it's one of those documentaries that like when you watch for the first time and the story unfolds, it's just twist after twist after twist. Like you just can't believe what you're watching. I think the first time my husband and I watched it, we just kept on looking at each other in like shock and disbelief at all these twists. Uh, but that's a very good example of three people. Obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's three identical strangers, right? So, you know, they're all identical, right? But three people who everyone focused on how they looked alike and the things they did that were alike. But in the end, people want seeing how different they were and how this and why they are different and how they ended up being identical and are they really strangers and how strange are they to each other and everything. But it's one of those situations where it's a lot of, it's, it's a whole study in nature versus nurture. And, um, it's a really good documentary. It's, it's very, 
funny in the beginning and then it just takes this darker turn and it becomes actually kind of a heartbreaking story. So don't watch it if you're feeling sad. Uh, but it is really interesting. And then the other thing you sort of mentioned about how, you know, um, I guess going down through history and, and, and this and Doctor Who, like the the idea that, you know, Doctor Who regenerates and stuff and he does have a double, I guess he takes on the faces of other people and stuff. But can, I mean, we're talking very much about doppelgangers being rooted in appearance, right? And that really is what it is when you when you look up the Wikipedia definition of or dictionary definition of a doppelganger is it's your double it's someone that looks like you. But I wonder if there's also cases of doppelgangers who don't necessarily look like you, but they've made the same decisions as you or they act like you, as in like personality doubles as opposed to physical doubles. And one of the examples of that that I saw in Star Trek that I thought was actually really interesting was Second Skin. Um, the DS9 episode says season three, episode five. And it's where um, Kira ends up being brought back to Cardassia and surgically altered or genetically altered or whatever to look like a Cardassian. They think that she's a Cardassian. And in this episode, it is a sort of a doppelganger episode because although she looks very different, she's obviously Bajoran. She's not Cardassian. There obviously is some resemblance in their facial features other than the fact that they're two different alien species, because she's she's supposed to, when she's been surgically older, she's supposed to look like this woman that she's supposed to, Ileana, who she's supposed to be, right? Because Cardassian woman. So obviously Ileana had some sort of resemblance to Kira, even though they were different species. But it's also that they were so alike in personality. So Ileana's father is taking care of Kira and talking to her, and he never really doubts that it's Ileana until much later in the episode. Uh, and for a long time, he believes it's Ileana because Kira's acting like Ileana because Ileana and Kira were very similar in how they behaved and how they talked, uh, how they their behaviour and their physical mannerisms and also just their personalities. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Like they're not identical, but they are so similar and there's no reason for it. They're not biologically related. They don't have the same parents. You know, they, they don't come from the same worlds. Uh, it's just fate that Ileana and Kira are similar. And then obviously, as, as the series goes on, we know that Ileana's father and obviously never never finds her, he fails to find her, and it's very sad. Um, but he maintains this father-daughter relationship with Kira. And you could say, well, that's because of what they went through together. But you could say it's because she's very similar to his daughter uh, in a way that he can maintain a relationship with her and care about her and be close to her because... She's like his daughter, and he and he continues to refer to her as his daughter. He says, "You're as, you know, you're, you're basically what I have as a daughter. You're as close to me as a daughter now. You are my family." And I thought that was really interesting because there's no reason why Eliana and Kira should be in any way similar, but they are. That is a really interesting point, and I guess I've always slightly dismissed that when I watch those episodes and see it more as like the parents' grief distorts their judgment and, you know, does he just, you know, he thinks he's got his daughter back, so he sort of convinces himself that they're similar. But I think you're right. There is in there this idea that there is a kind of link between Kira and this Cardassian woman, that there's there's enough similarity between them that they can, uh, you know, that they can construct this version of events sort of plausibly. But I think there's, there's it, that's a whole interesting realm when you come to these kind of questions of imposters i think 
you mentioned before we started recording, you'd seen the documentary The Imposter, which again is a fantastic um documentary to watch. I don't want to give too much away because uh, there are <laughs> these documentaries are so good, but you in like, we don't want to spoil them <laughs> <it's>, for you. <laughs> exactly. And it's it's one of those things, it, you know, it's quite moving. It's also becomes quite chilling at points. But it's exactly that sort of question of, you know, can a, a parent convince themselves that they've got their child back when actually they manifestly haven't? Um, which I suppose is maybe how I saw that story with Kira and, um, and the older Cardassian man. But yeah, it, it, I don't know that, again, it comes down to these questions of, you, you know, who are you? And Kira herself in that episode isn't even sure that she's who she thinks she is. It, you know, it's another, it's a, it's a sort of parallel life for her potentially. Um, and I think when they were writing that episode, they were considering uh, often in the kind of behind the scenes of these stories, there's a kind of, uh, more out there direction that they chicken out of taking. They were considering it being the case that she actually was the Cardassian spy, that that was, that was the reality. Equally with second chances, I think they were considering killing off Will Riker and, you know, carrying on with Thomas Riker. So basically, you know, switching out the, the lead character in the show. Um, which I guess you could say they, they, in a very, very minor way, they do on Voyager in Deadlock yeah, with Harry yeah. Kim, uh, and indeed <laughs> Naomi Wildman. I mean, I don't, to me, people go on and on about, you know, oh, no one ever talks about the fact that it's not really our Harry, it's not really the real Harry Kim, it's this other Harry Kim. Well, they, the, the two split like in the first 10 minutes of the episode. And then do you, do you know what I mean? It's only for like half an hour or something as we're watching it that they're, they're not the same person. But, but there is that kind of interesting sense there of, you know, a bit like in Fringe, you have characters kind of going from one universe into the other. Uh, you know, our Harry Kim in quote marks is the one who gets, you know, sucked out into space and dies. Um, and the Harry Kim that we have going forward is a different one. But I don't know whether in Star Trek you sort of wonder, do these distinctions mean anything? Because with the transporter, you have this whole sort of philosophical dilemma. Well, the transporter disassembles you into nothing and then it rebuilds you somewhere else. Are you the same person that you were before? I mean, they seem quite un concerned about these sort of existential questions that might trouble us. Um, but there is this sort of, this sort of question. And actually in, um, so you talked about Whispers, the uh, DS9 episode. There's another DS9 episode that I always get mixed up with that visionary, which is the one where there's two O'Briens again, but one of them is from slightly in the future. Um, and one of them is going to die. And it, I can't remember, maybe it's not the one you expect or whatever, but they sort of, um, it, it, there's this line, one O'Brien says to the other one, um, at one point, you're me, I'm you, it doesn't matter. Basically, it doesn't matter which of us dies and which of us survives. Uh, and O'Brien is going to go forward and, you know, that's the important thing, which feels like the same kind of attitude that you get with the transporter. You know, uh, it doesn't really matter whether I'm the same person when I, you know, rematerialize that I was when I dematerialized. I suppose from everyone else's perspective, you are. And therefore you are, but it, it raises this kind of interesting question of where does identity reside? And, um, you know, what does it mean to be transported or to be replaced or to be that, that alternative one or whatever? Um, but there is that kind of question when we get it, I suppose, with similitude in enterprise, you know, one trip has to die. Sim has to die for trip to live. Um, and he rails against it for a while and then sort of comes to accept it. I feel like in that episode, it's much more anguished. It's much more difficult. It's much more problematic uh, compared to the O'Briens sort of saying, well, you know, 
one of us has to go. Um, but I suppose there's also that sort of question of, you, you know, do you want to leave, from a narrative point of view, do you want to leave a duplicate hanging around, uh, as Next Generation did with Thomas Riker, which meant he could come back in DS9 and get into shenanigans with his uh, fake sideburns and so on? Or do you want <laughs> to kill one of them off, which is narratively usually the course that is taken, because as much as it's fun to string these stories along, ultimately, you know, the, the, there's a need to kind of get back to the status quo. Um, and, you know, something like Farscape plays that out brilliantly. They, they string it along for like the best part of a season, I think, and then kill off one of them, but maybe not the one you were expecting. Um, so I, I think, again, there's, there's, there, there are the different levels that these things work on. Do they work on a sort of scientific level, on a philosophical level, on a kind of social level, uh, an emotional level, or do they work purely on a kind of literary level as a, a sort of literary device? And one thing that struck me, um, you know, reading some of the books I was reading in preparation for this, as well as uh, watching the Star Trek episodes, is that there are, there's an ambiguity that you can have in writing that is very hard to preserve in a visual medium, which which has a kind of visual realism, which obviously all of Star Trek does, essentially. I mean, if you think of, um, for example, there's a wonderful book uh, called The New York Trilogy by Paul Auster, which is all about doubles and doppelgangers and duplicates and all these kind of things. But often there's a kind of slight ambiguity about what exactly people look like and whether they do really look exactly like each other or they just kind of resemble each other. Uh, or what, and you can kind of get away with that in literature because you're not showing, you know, there's no pictures. It's all kind of, it's left, it's happening in the reader's imagination. And somehow it's possible for the reader to kind of imagine things, I think, in a slightly hazy enough way. Uh, because you're, you're, our mind's eye is not probably as, as precise as a movie camera, you know, that you can play with that kind of ambiguity. And it's interesting when you were talking about, um, people are being in a similar situation, not looking alike. One of the books I suggested to you to read is a story, uh, which I really love, short story called um, The Secret Sharer by Joseph Conrad. Um, and I suggested it because in my mind, this is a story about a double. Well, actually, when I went back and reread it, it's quite explicitly not about a double insofar as it's not a an identical it's it's not it's not a kind of supernatural doppelganger who looks you know identical to the protagonist. It's a guy who's sort of about the same age, who's quite similar. Um, he ends up giving him some of his clothes, so they look the same. You know, it's sort of all about this sense of like of the similarity between them and how this guy functions as a double. And there is that kind of eeriness, and there is that kind of um, weird connection between them. This weird, in the case of that story quite homoerotic bond between them, this 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 very intense relationship between these two men. But they're not, you know, he, he's not a supernatural uh, or science fiction-y um, clone, if you know what I mean. He's just someone who's kind of similar enough that it registers and that it's a bit weird and a bit um, uh, freaky somehow. Yeah, it's interesting that you should say that, like in the sort of like, in the secret share, it's you know they're like doubles and spirit almost, aren't they? Kind of in personality rather than in like physical. But even like you know, like, it's like they've made themselves doubles of each other, haven't they? Like it's a conscious decision to to share, as opposed to this idea of 
the double coming and on you know you being unwilling to sort of the double unwillingly being pushed upon you this this person that looks just like you or acts just like you or whatever is sort of revealed to you unexpectedly it's interesting you should say that about how the double's different in literary terms than in visual terms like there's a a tv series called the dublin murders which is a, a adaptation of several murder mystery books um and it the author is irish and she's it's obviously it's set in ireland and she weaves this sort of uh sort of irish folklore throughout the this very modern murder mystery story and uh, so you know it's like the actual irish police irish detectives investigating um crimes uh and about the end sort of sort of in the background is this mystical element to it um a bunch of kids uh in the go running into the forest and they play in the forest and only one of them comes out and they can't really explain what happened there's all the stuff folklore about forest spirits and stuff but there's an also there's also another storyline about a female detective investigating uh, the murder of someone that looks just like her, basically her double, and it's never clearly explained why she has a double, or if this woman is related to her, or or if it's just fate that they look, but they're like identical, really identical, and there's some things in their sort of lives that sort of mirror each other, and seeing the adaptation on television versus the actual book is quite is quite striking because you when you watch it on television you need to know like because obviously the two characters are played by the same actress so you're like you need to know like why is she a double like why what how, how is this happening um whereas in the book i think it's much more left up to the like you said the viewer's imagination and it's much more mystical and it just doesn't work the same way on television and i think the ending is quite unsatisfactory because you're like i never you never get to the bottom of why this woman is her double um and but in the book i don't think it's quite as unsatisfactory because it's just written more lyrically you know like as in it just sort of fits in with the whole sort of mystical irish folklore aspect to the to the storyline but seeing it visually on screen is so striking. You're like, well, I need to know. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it doesn't. It does, it's not as a, it's not as satisfying. And I wonder if the concept of the double works in a more sort of I don't know fantastical way in literature, but has to be more explained in film and television and that's why it fits more with some sort of scientific idea like a a clone or a long lost twin or um it doesn't or, you know or you know i guess you could put it in a horror movie and have it be some sort of witchcraft or something but like it, it has to be sort of explained more because visually it's much more maybe just, i don't know maybe we find it more shocking to see two identical images you know as opposed to when we're reading it, imagining two identical things. I wondered if it's harder to imagine identical people in your mind. Do you know what I mean? In your imagination, whether it's harder to visualize identical people um, without adding some difference between the two based on what you're reading. I found it when I was reading The Double that I'd, I was starting to add differences between the two of them, even though they're mm. supposed to be identical. I, you know, I, just even the differences in their clothes or the differences in their expressions or how they were, because they were acting different at times, even though they were acting similar at times, they, towards the end of the novella, they start acting quite differently. And so I was, 
making them different in my mind. Whereas when I watched the film The Double, which is a film that um, is a sort of loose adaptation of the book, um, of the novel, novella, um, and it was written in 2013, it was made in 2013, it's written and directed by Richard Ayoade, who is a very famous British, I think, film critic and writer. Um, he's a writer, he's written books. I don't think he's, well, he was in the IT crowd. I think he's made made films, he's directed and acted. Uh, and it stars an actor who I think a lot of people would recognise. Jesse Eisenberg, I think his name is. He was in, mm. uh, he was the Social film. Social Network. Social Network, yeah, the film about Facebook. Mm. Um, which is, it's a really interesting film. <laughs> I would definitely recommend seeing it. And obviously I'm not going to, Change, like spoil the plot by telling you it's about a guy who meets his double <laughs> but um in that film it was hard to think of them as anything separate from each other because they were obviously played by the same actor you know and it's only when their behavior starts to differentiate them so the original is is is, is turns out to be I, I guess shall we say he meets a better version of himself um, who gets with the girl that he wants to be with, like you were saying before in this podcast, you know, this romantic triangle between the two, the two people, two, two, the doubles and the woman they're both interested in. Um, but they, when they start acting differently, then you start differentiating between the two of them. But before that, they're just, they look exactly the same because they're both played by the same actor. So it's doesn't seem as nuanced. It seems much more overt. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Compared to the actual novel. It's interesting also, I suppose, on screen, you have to decide, do you want to make them look identical or do you want to differentiate them? So with Thomas Riker and Will Riker, they conveniently put them in different coloured uniforms. So you can tell immediately, uh, you know, which one is which. They're, <laughs> they're kind of flagged up very obviously. Uh, in the original series, The Enemy Within, as, as much as there is this kind of ambiguity in terms of, you know, Yeoman Ram doesn't know which of them is, is coming on to her or whatever, uh, they shoot them totally differently to, to an extent that is quite, um, hilarious in some ways to watch today. <laughs> so you get that, like the, the nasty one, the kind of evil, evil twin version of Kirk gets the, uh, you know, freaky lighting and the kind of, um, he's got sort of sweat pouring off him and he's, he's just shot in a completely different style somehow. So you're, you're, you're not in doubt as to which one is which. Do they put like eyeliner on him? I feel like they put makeup on I'm him. I'm sure they do. Yeah. The makeup <laughs> is different. The whole, the, you know, the whole kind of, uh, visual, look uh of those shots is different so they, they kind of very deliberately differentiate him of course by the time you get to star trek six and you've got the two kirks who play out quite a similar beat in some ways i mean in the enemy within you've got these two kirks on the bridge saying i'm the captain i'm the captain no it's me you know in this kind of battle for like which of us is the real one which of course is complicated in that story because they're not exactly doubles they're different they're they're, they're both sort of different halves of the same whole um then in Star Trek VI, uh, obviously you've got the shapeshifter who impersonates Kirk and they have the same thing. You know, I'm the clone. I'm the, I'm not the, you know, she's the clone. He's the clone. I'm the real one. This is, you know, I'm the real Captain Kirk. Um, and it's interesting by then it's almost become this slightly self-parodying joke because there's this sense, the way they talk to each other, they suddenly get into this kind of quipping banter. Um, and it's almost like the double of Captain Kirk is actually William Shatner 
because it's all about ego and it's uh they have this line i can't believe i kissed you it must have been your lifelong ambition you know it's basically the double is the kind of manifestation of kirk's or more likely shatner's narcissism essentially <laughs> you know here's a kind of other version of himself uh it's played in a completely different register but it's also uh it hinges on the fact that we don't even know which one is the real one um and i suppose it's this question of you know are these stories about the kind of uncanny experience of meeting yourself and what that's like from a kind of psychological point of view or whatever are they stories about an imposter uh who is you know as in the original uh novella the double you know he's trying to sort of take over your life who is as i said the kind of identity thief um and it's interesting in the enemy within they keep using this word the imposter even though they also keep explaining that there is no imposter you know they're both equal halves of kirk he needs both of them to survive and so on and yet they keep referring to one of them as the imposter as if the other one is somehow the the real captain kirk um it's it's a weird example i think of where the show is is kind of undermining itself constantly by you know by saying one thing and then showing the opposite somehow um but i think it goes to the core of this kind of question you know of identity and this kind of crisis of identity um that in the case of that episode it's even a kind of crisis on the level of the script that it kind of they can't quite work out how to uh, even talk about what's happened so what about the mirror universe so i feel like the mirror universe is an interesting sort of example because okay so then the your mirror counterpart isn't an imposter although there's plenty of though they can uh, be if they're exactly yeah or, you know <laughs> yeah or or um i'm trying to think i'm sure there's isn't there a situation in ds9 where maybe not but where one of them one of the mirror universe maybe it's not actually maybe it's only discovery but i mean i'm sure there's other no, examples there are where, where people are pretending to be their mirror version i think there are yeah yeah so because we as the as the viewers of star trek we see them as the mirror unit we call them the mirror universe right so we know they're an alternate universe but they're also a mirror um universe i think isn't that because they're supposed to be the closest universe to the prime universe Although who knows, maybe yeah, whatever, the maybe you know. the maybe the Kelvin universe. Somebody who listens to this podcast, please explain alternate universes to us. Um, but the the prime universe people characters all think of themselves as being in the prime universe. But I'm sure the mirror universe characters think of them being in their prime universe. But we don't course, see yeah. them. We see them as mirror. But mm. so it's this idea of like one doppelganger is superior to the other right and uh but the, they're not interchangeable or one is one is the true one and one is the is the double but the doubles in the mirror universe think of themselves as being the true ones and the people in the prime universe as being the which you don't get in fringe actually i think in fringe is a different example like in fringe i don't think they feel like one universe is the main universe I mean, maybe initially as the series starts out, you start to think of the universe that you started watching the series in is the main universe. But you do, as the series goes on, start to care about the people in the alternate universe because you start to follow their stories. Whereas Star Trek doesn't do that as much. I know there's lots of episodes where you go to the mirror universe, but it's still always the prime universe characters we root for and we care about. And ultimately... 
Otherwise, people wouldn't be asking now on Twitter, like, where's Prime Lorca? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's the Prime Spock that we care about, not his mirror counterpart. It's the Prime... Although, actually, is it, though? Because we, we start to care about, we, and we get to know very well the mirror Georgiou, don't we? But that's only because Prime Georgiou is dead. Like, and, you know, so then it, are we happy to accept a mirror Georgiou? Like, is she a good replacement? You know, it, is, is, is that, is it all okay now? Georgiou's back, but it's not Georgiou because she's Prime Georgiou, because she's a mirror Georgiou, not Prime Georgiou. I mean, I find the mirror universe a very beguiling, confusing, part of star trek to be honest yeah i'd say that the mirror universe raises all kinds of extra uh questions because (laughs) i suppose they are typically they're doubles but they're they've got a beard or a mustache or you know they're obviously (laughs) not the same they're, they're usually quite um clearly differentiated in their clothing or their you know facial hair or or whatever it is there isn't i mean they may end up impersonating um but that involves some kind of transformation or some kind of an act so there isn't the sort of uncanny element i don't think it's more the sort of there but for the grace of god go i sort of you you know an alter they're, they're a sort of alternative you know they're an alternate version um as I suppose is the case in Fringe, you know, with the with the parallel universe in Fringe. But I guess in Fringe, there's it's also an interesting question because it's the the split has happened relatively recently compared to the mirror universe in Star Trek. So the universes are fairly similar, except that because they've experienced different things over the course of the last, you know, whatever it is, like 25, 30 years technology has developed differently in one to the other. Um, you know, one universe has all these kind of problems that that you know our universe ostensibly doesn't um so that so there, there are there is sort of more divergence i suppose there's that sense that they're going to diverge increasingly with more time i don't know i mean to me i sort of feel like the mirror universe it it doesn't evoke that feeling you know the thing that freud says that the double evokes this kind of uncanny feeling or this kind of dread or you know all this stuff i, I don't get any of that from the mirror universe, really, uh, I think it's somehow it, it, it feels more, it doesn't feel as existentially troubling. And maybe it should, because, you know, obviously, you know, finding there's a, an evil moustache twirling version of you out there would be quite, um, alarming in reality. But maybe because it all seems quite camp and it all seems quite far fetched, <laughs> yeah. it, it does, there isn't all that much psychological realism, uh, in there, or at least that's not the mode that it's, playing with um so maybe it's a bit less troubling somehow than than some of these some of these other episodes which are you know like you say whispers uh is really freaky i mean Times squared i think is a really freaky episode you know they've got this picard lying there who they can't really communicate with him is he, he they don't really treat him uh as a i was gonna say they don't treat him as a person it's not quite that bad but they don't they don't it's not like they're like, oh, Captain, you know, if you think about like Captain J- Admiral Janeway in Endgame, okay, you know, it's like, okay, here's, you know, here's a time traveling admiral come on board and, you know, let's sit down and have a chat with her and work out what to do. And we can kind of, can we work together? Can we trust her? We'll sort of, you, you know, but she's very much like a, an, another, you know, a sort of guest character. That Picard in Times Squared is like a sort of, um, a creature almost. Do you know what I mean? The way that they sort of relate to him. 
Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I think because he spends so much of it being uncommunicative, hmm. or, or 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 not being able to communicate. It's almost like they're looking at. I felt like they were looking at like a a sort of like a, a, a I don't know what to explain. Like a like a sort of immature version of Picard. You know, like a Picard mm. that like. I don't know. Has the, has the look of Picard, but has none of the intelligence or or the sort of mind of Picard. Do you know what I mean? And, and like obviously, that's Thor, I suppose. In yeah, some ways, yeah, almost, exactly. Only in that, yeah. in this case, he's from the future, so he's the you know whatever the opposite of before is <laughs> after you know. But and, yeah, and then you're yeah. thinking, well, what did what happened in that period in order to make mm. Picard like this? You know, like to make him this sort of substandard version of himself. Um, and obviously, in the end of that, he kills him. I mean, Picard kills his kills his double. Yeah. So that's the prime, that's the prime uh, ending to a double story: is one double is forced to kill the other double because um, they can't, the two of them can't exist in the same time. And it's that idea also that's sort of connected to time travel. You know, in some time travel stories that you see in fiction, people can't go back to the same time period that they are already in. Like it's like a paradox. Like there can't be two of you in the same place, and if the two of you are in the same place and I don't know, like the planets will align and the universe will explode or whatever it is. Do you know what I mean? Like as in you can't see yourself, or you can't talk to yourself or who knows. There's an interesting, just on that, on that question, there's a great exchange in, um, in this play, a number that I mentioned earlier where one character says to the other in this sort of, uh, exactly that you know the idea of a sort of time travel paradox or whatever says don't they say you die if you meet yourself and the other one responds walk around the corner and see yourself you could get a heart attack as in like it's not it's not the kind of you know the the nature of the universe or whatever that it you know can't cope with these two people it's just the it's the the pure psychological horror of witnessing that would kind of kill you somehow so it's this interest again it's sort of this question of on what level are we interpreting these realities if you know what i mean is this a kind of um existential crisis or is it purely a psychological crisis yeah like in second chances i do feel that both of them are quite calm like in see- in seeing each other and i mean to certain i mean obviously cause they couldn't get jonathan frakes to like starve himself for an episode but to a certain extent for somebody who's been stuck on a planet like for a long time without replicators and with not you know he's he does say at one point i've been short a couple of meals and he's obviously a bit disheveled uh you know he doesn't have this i mean his beard his beard is kept quite trim you know he doesn't have this huge beard and like long hair because he hasn't been able to cut his hair and he's not skinny you know he actually kind of looks fairly healthy He's kind of the same size as Thomas Riker. I mean, they have wear different uniforms, but they could actually look even more different if they went all the whole hog, you know, and they'd actually portrayed a person who had spent eight years in basically solitary confinement on a planet or a station or whatever it is by themselves um, with not much to eat, you know? I mean, like, um, I mean, obviously, they didn't want to put Jonathan Frakes probably through some of that, so fair enough. So this might be a good point in the podcast for me to talk about the numbers, the numbers. <laughs> oh, yeah, so, I should have asked you about this before. Yes, your, your <laughs> research into like the proliferation of doubles in Star Trek. Right? Yeah, so I did I did some adding up of doubles. And what I included was a huge amount of double situations. So I, not just simple doppelgangers, um, which I say simple, because as we've discussed, doppelgangers is a complicated subject, but like, not just like a double. But like, so anything where anybody's sort of duplicated in some way, like transporter accidents, holograms being duplicated, people, um, 
like sort of uh, uh, posing as somebody else. So I'm thinking of like situations, episodes where a shapeshifter will pose as an actual duplicate of somebody else. Um, clones, holograms, androids that are similar. And I did some research and I got as far as DS9. I didn't get any further because... <laughs> I ran out of time, and also because I have I haven't seen lot lo- I haven't se- I've only seen one episode of Lower Decks, so ah, okay, and I haven't seen Prodigy, and um, I'd had I'd only seen one episode of Strange New Worlds, and you know I hadn't managed to get through all of them, and so the movies are included in this, <coughs> the movies are included in this, so I also I also looked for help. Um, there's a guy on YouTube who has gone through every single episode that has a double in it for the entire franchise, except for Discovery, because he is one of those people who doesn't think Discovery is Star Trek. So we will bypass his personal opinion there. We'll park that for now, yeah. (laughs) I think think we should include Discovery. Mm -hmm. Um, And so just like on top, if you include Discovery, which we should, um, and I included his examples of Picard and his examples of Lower Decks, I don't know if he did Picard season two, but anyway, um, there's well over 240. I think it's something like 248 examples of doppelgangers or doubles in Star Not doppelgangers, but of doubles. So there's 27 in TOS. And that includes like the man trap, you know, where the salt monster impersonates another person. Um, so there's 27 in TOS, there's 13 in TNG. There's 33 in Deep Space Nine, 156 in Voyager. And I think this guy included 156 because he meant like at one point the entire Voyager crew was doubled. So it's probably less than that if you think about it. So this is okay. That, so that's good. So this is not episodes in which there are, in which there's. No, this is literally double, character, these are the doubled characters. characters doubled. Yeah. Okay, fine. Yeah. yeah. Yes, because in Demon, the, obviously the whole of Voyager is, is, is crew is doubled. Copied. Yeah. Uh, for, for like about five seconds at the end. <laughs> and then obviously it takes us a while to, to you know, pick up on that. Okay, yeah. And, and TO- when you said TOS and TNG, that included the movies for TOS and TNG. Okay. But he did do short tracks because, I mean, what about Harry Mudd in that episode? Yeah. He, yeah. he, like, he doubles himself, doesn't he? ANT, he said only three. I, th- I think that's wrong. I think there's more in Enterprise. Interesting. Because Travis has doubled. Is he? Yeah, isn't he doubled an episode? I think he's cloned at one point. Travis is cloned by some force. And then uh, poor Similitude. Similitude. Poor Similitude, Sim. yeah. Trip, Similitude, thank you. <laughs> Similitude. Similitude. Yeah. And then but there's the also third there's one? the one with the Organians. Uh, yes. That you could, that surely is there's a copy of Trip. There's a copy of Hoshi. So so it's more there's than three. Co- it's got to be more than three. If, you, if you're counting, if you're basically counting any time that someone, basically you're counting any time that the actor who plays a character is not playing that character on some level. I mean, that's the other way of looking at doubling. You know, we talk about doubling in the theatre where an actor plays more than one part. Uh, you, you know, from a kind of production point of view, um this is a cheap form of storytelling, right? Because you don't have to hire more actors. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if, you, yeah, if your exactly. guest star of the week is Jonathan Frakes and he's also one of your regulars, then that's very convenient. You know, just get Brett Spiner to, yeah, to be yeah, there, exactly. to be honest. So yeah. he's going to play the entire <laughs> the entire crew. So yeah. Picard has nine. I think with season two, Picard must have more than nine by now. Mm-hmm. Um, 
There's a DS9 was 33, yeah. Uh, Lower Decks is two, apparently, but I, mm-hmm. I reckon... I don't know about Lower Decks, I haven't seen all of it. But then, of course, Discovery. If you include Discovery in that, because I think about the all the Mirror Universe counterparts, mm. you know. And then, are we including characters playing themselves from different time zones, like different timelines? Like, as in, like... Does that ever happen in Discovery? Do they meet each other in a different time? Well, like, obviously in Times Squared, you know, yes. the, the, the doppelganger of Picard is essentially just Picard six hours in the future, isn't he? And, and the same in uh, in DS9 in uh, Whispers. Is it? No, not Whispers, the other one, Visionary. I told you Visionary. I got them mixed up. Yeah. In Visionary, yeah, is, is, is O'Brien from the future. So there is that. But then, you, you see, that in itself raises this question, you, you know, who are you? What's your identity? Well, is you... I think we can kind of accept that Captain Janeway and Admiral Janeway in Endgame are two different people. Uh, are the two O'Briens two different people? Just because one of them's had slightly more experiences than the other? Do you know what I mean? If if you woke up tomorrow and had lost a week's worth of memories, would you be a different person? Or would you be, you know, substantially the same person with a, a bit of memory loss? I mean, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Again, it kind of brings up these these big questions about, you know, who am I and, and what is it that makes me, me? And and does, for example, Data transferring all his memories to B4 potentially just turn B4 into Data, which I think is the concern that Georgie is expressing in Nemesis. Uh, data seems quite unconcerned about it. Then by the end of that film, I mean, obviously we know from Picard it didn't work out, but the kind of, the implication is that somehow by doing that with any luck, Data has uh, turned B4 into data, you know, that this is a, a route to immortality in a sense. Um, but, you know, is, so is this something to be very anguished and worried about, or is it something to be quite chilled about? But it's interesting. I mean, it's the two things that jump out at me from the numbers that you mentioned is that the next gen seems quite low and Voyager, obviously very high. I do think as much as we've been talking about these examples of it being very anguished and these, this kind of eerie, uncanny experience and, and it was being an issue. Um, one thing about deadlock that I would say, as much as Janeway says, has this line weird as part of the job, the two Janeways get on pretty well. I mean, really that story is not about differences. It's not about the freakiness of working with your duplicate or your counterpart. Um, they make quite a good team. I mean, they come up against each other a little bit. They have, you know, because Janeway always seems to be on a mission to sacrifice herself. They kind of have to fight over who gets to, you know, blow up their ship for the sake of the other one. But ultimately, they work together and they work together quite well. And then, of course, by the time you get to Demon, quite extraordinarily, uh, the entire Voyager crew volunteers to be duplicated uh, and have their, their duplicates left behind on that planet, which is quite a sort of um, generous thing to do, I suppose. I mean, if you think, you know, if you asked someone to uh, be a sperm donor, they would probably want to, you know, think seriously about <laughs> it. Do you know what I mean? Whereas they're, they're just like, yeah, okay, you can copy all of us and, and make another version of us and they'll, they'll stick around to the Delta Quadrant. Um, so it does sort of make me wonder, why is it that that as much as the kind of trope of the double is quite anguished and sort of sinister and, and difficult, there are these examples in Star Trek where it's so unproblematic. So for Janeway, it seems unproblematic. For Data, it seems pretty unproblematic. Um, and it sort of made me wonder as well, I was going to ask when you talked about this Irish story about this woman with her, the detective with the doppelganger, um, 
is there something quite gendered about these stories? Because it's quite unusual, I would say, that they are stories that centre around women or indeed are written by women. Um, typically, it it tends to be a sort of a male story or, or, or a male issue. And I'm just thinking, even if the story is written by a woman, um, maybe one of the earliest science fiction examples would be Frankenstein. Now, Frankenstein and his monster are not doubles in the sense they don't look alike, but they are counterparts for each other um, to the extent that when the um, National Theatre did their production of Frankenstein a few years ago, they had the two actors, Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, doubling both roles and swapping night after night as to who would play which part. And they really played up this sense of the the, the two as kind of uh, sort of two halves of the same coin almost, or, or as kind of reflecting each other, you know, the monster as a kind of, I suppose, horrific mirror image of, of Dr. Frankenstein somehow. But it does feel like there's, these are stories that are often, they're centred around men and they're, and they play into kind of maybe male anxieties and, and this kind of anguish. And it just strikes me that, you know, when it's Janeway or when it's Data, who yes, is male, but is very free from all that male angst, if you know what I mean. Uh, they're just like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, well, you know, let's get on with it, get on with the job. Yes, we can work with the double. That's fine. Uh, they have lots of skills and, and so on. Uh, whereas someone like Riker, who's more of a kind of alpha male, is like, you know, what? This guy, <laughs> you know, what is this guy doing <laughs> on my ship? I'm, I can't cope with this at all. I mean, I know what you're saying. And maybe the, the sort of male examples, it's a more individual, individualistic sense of self. You know, a more individualistic sense of freedom, of identity, of, of, of a more sort of a heroic idea, you know, that like there can be only one. I'm just, I keep saying that. Obviously, that's, a, that's like a, isn't that like a line from like Highlander? <laughs> there can be only one. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. You know, like there can be only one. Um, whereas perhaps maybe the Voyager Janeway example is that, that she feels like she's part of a bigger whole. You know, mm. she's part of a crew, and this only obviously only one Jamie and one captain, but she's part of this bigger world, you know. And in a way, Starfleet is like that, like you are part of a, a larger whole, something bigger than yourself. Um, and in that case, you maybe you're willing to sacrifice some of your individualistic identity um to be able to achieve a common goal or a common good. Um and that maybe you as an individual is part of this bigger this bigger idea, but it's not so important that you are um, to be just special you, you as yourself. Does that make sense? Mm. I was wondering if, you know, because obviously if, if they're willing to be kind of doubled um, to reach, a, to, to help um, reach a better end, for something or a better cause, um, that's really looking beyond your own sense of self, um, and really, re- being willing willing to sacrifice some of your own sense of self and your own individual freedom in order to be able to, I guess, help in a wider way than just being like I've got to assert my own personality, my own individual right, my own personal glorious de- destiny, or whatever. Um, I want to say that feels like a more male thing to me, but I don't know if that's necessarily actually a more male thing or whether society's gendered me to think that. Do you know what I mean? Like if that's a, just a gender 
construct. Um, well, it's more stereotypically male, I suppose you could say. Maybe yeah. it's, 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 yeah, it's not intrinsically well, male necessarily, but like, but it is more cultu- stereotypically. culturally, more, culturally, yeah, more, yeah. I think I think that's fair enough, and I think that's a really interesting point. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but that that maybe it reflects Janeway's sort of leadership style, or you know, or something. But um, but I think it's an interesting question. You, you know, why? Why do we find these stories so freaky and troubling? And when we don't, you know, why don't we? And, you know, I mean, it goes, you know, right the way back to the double, the original story, um, which is a funny one because it, it is freaky and troubling, but it's also, you know, it's basically a comedy, isn't it? You know, it's basically the kind of, it's a sort of comedy of embarrassment somehow and the kind of awkwardness, a, a bit like, you know, you go to a party and someone else is wearing the same outfit. It's almost the same. It's this sort of cringe factor uh, is a part of it. And there's an interesting line in that book where one of the characters says, honest folk don't have doubles. So there's this sense that somehow there's an element of kind of shame associated with it. Do you know what I mean? The double the double is almost like the skeleton in the closet or, or or a version of you that you don't necessarily I suppose it's a version of you that you don't have control over so you, your double can go out and get drunk and make a fool of themselves and you can't even there's nothing you can do to stop it do you know what I mean and they they can embarrass you somehow um you don't have control over them they're a version of you that's kind of out of your control somehow I wonder whether that's why there's this sort of association between the doubles and, and kind of shame but I think there's also this sense whether they're um superior and therefore they make you feel crap about yourself as in those kind of stories or whether they're this slightly wretched kind of abject version as with maybe the kind of you know creature like picard in times squared which sort of undermines our picard as well do you know what i mean by association you sort of think uh oh he, he, he it's another way of seeing him that we're maybe not used to um, and it just strikes me. I, I don't know when you, when you were talking about horror earlier. I don't know if you've seen that film Us, which yeah. is a really freaky film where, where everyone has these kind of scary, weird, creepy kind of underground doubles. But again, there's that sense of sort of abjection or wretchedness or kind of. I mean, they're 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 kind of nasty and violent as well, but they're also sort of they don't really speak and they're a bit kind of um, grotesquely sort of what sort of un I was gonna say uncivilized I don't know if that's the right word they're called they're called the un they're called the untethered aren't they yeah or they or are they called the tethered tethered. they're called the tethered there's a tether between the the two uh between you and your your it's your sort of your your what your sort of darker I suppose in a kind of psychoanalytic sense it's your repressed you know self or, or whatever but it's 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 that sense that they are the kind of ugly part that you're keeping hidden and at bay when you're projecting because the story takes place in this sort of nice um uh very kind of genteel well-off seaside seaside resort or whatever do you know what i mean like everyone has these lovely houses and it's all about the kind of um the lifestyle and so on and yet there's this sort of this this sort of ugly hidden self uh underneath somehow yeah but you see i think by the end of that film, spoilers for anybody. This is a massive spoiler. I was I was carefully skirting around that one, Clara. But all right, okay. okay. Genu- well, I'm not, genuinely, I, I, pause the podcast. Go and watch. The I won't. Film I won't. I won't. I won't say. I won't say what happens. It's, it's but good, I think by the end of it, twist. you are actually thinking maybe the people above who aren't the tethered, the, the people like us, 
are also partly because it's a critique on American society, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So when it says us, it's almost like we're the problem. Like as in maybe these wealthy, genteel, civilized people above ground are also bad. You know, I mean, yeah. I won't go into details because I don't want to spoil the, the film. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to just ask you though was because just looking at these numbers, I mean, there's an incredible amount of doubling in mm. Star Trek. I mean, almost more so than like a lot of other narrative ideas, right? Um, I mean, there are narrative ideas as well. You know, there's lots of other sort of concepts um, in Star Trek, but this is a really strong concept, right? Uh, that's used again and again and again by writers. And I think you find it in lots of science fiction. I mean, you've talked about the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. There's so many doubles in that. Mm-hmm. And then... We talk, you know, we talk about, you know, like you were saying, in Doctor Who, dub- doubling doubles in Doctor Who, and then Fringe, Fringe, Orphan Black, Black. Uh, Another, yeah, you know, like yeah. it just, it, it just seems to be a, a concept that science fiction, you know, is constantly chewing on and working around, working over and digesting and re- basically regurgitating. Sorry, that sounds disgusting. <laughs> um, but why specifically with star trek why i just want to know i want to know what you thought like why why is this a narrative idea that just shows up again and again and again in star trek the idea of a double well i guess it i mean there's probably a number of reasons uh that you could say in answer to that question what one as i said is it's a cheap way of getting guest stars you know <laughs> and star trek has historically you know it does get its actors to uh, work outside the box. Do you know what I mean? Whether it's it's playing holodeck characters or versions of their character in an alternate timeline, or you, you know whatever it is, it is a show that kind of expects uh, performances of different characters from that. You know, expects doubling on that level, uh, which obviously is cheap. I mean, literally free. Uh, <laughs> so, so there might be that to it. But it's also obviously Star Trek is a show that is all about you know the the human condition and what does it mean to be human and who are we and these kind of, you know it's about the big philosophical questions which i think these double stories often uh bring up so it makes sense it's a kind of it's a kind of um it's an obvious well to go to i think it also in some of these stories it taps into the sort of social justice element of star trek as well though because there is this sort of question with a lot of these storylines um either they tend to go in this kind of creepy uncanny direction or there's a sort of question of exploitation of the double you know i'm thinking of like obviously sim in similitude there's a lot of discomfort around the extent to which they're basically exploiting him and he is you know he is almost treated like a thing rather than a person in nemesis you know as i say you've kind of got the same thing in reverse almost that you know shinzon is, is using picard he needs to be he needs Picard to sort of be a thing for him to, to, you know, get what he wants out of him to, for his own purposes. I don't know. It sort of feels like there is sometimes this sense that these, uh, these duplicates or these clones are vulnerable to some extent. And it sort of makes me wonder, you know, do we need to have the kind of the clone measure of a man, uh, with Picard or someone, you know, really standing up? Uh, for these characters, which arguably, I suppose, you do get sort of in Picard season one. I mean, one of the 
striking features of the um, synths is that they come in pairs, isn't it? Um, and the whole thing with Daj and Soji, you know, I remember, um, in fact, when Picard season one uh, was about to launch, and obviously it's a big, t- this, uh, I don't think this is a spoiler alert because it's in the first episode of Picard, but the fact that Daj dies in the first episode of Picard um and in fact, the character that continues in the show is is Soji. That was something they kept under wraps. They kept secret. They were like, you know, all the press and everything was all about Daj and this character Daj and, you know, how she was one of the lead characters. Uh, and in fact, she wasn't. And funnily enough, because I was at the press junket for the Picard premiere, uh, the day after, I think we all went to see the, the first episode and, and then we went and did the press interviews. But again, they were trying to keep this under wraps until the show itself had gone out. Um Anissa Briones talked herself into a bit of a muddle because she basically revealed that she was playing these two characters in one of the, and then she said, sorry, you can't, you, you know, delete that, delete that. Don't, you know, basically don't put that out because people aren't, aren't meant to know that. And I had a bit of an editing job because I was putting the interviews out on the podcast to edit around what she'd said so that it wasn't really <laughs> obvious that I'd edited something, but to basically redact this piece of information, uh, which was, I suppose, that she was playing, you know, two characters, that it was a doubling role so i don't know yeah i guess that there's an example you know even up to up to the the present where this this theme is kind of resonating what about you what do you think what's the why what why is it so, such a big deal but also why looking at those numbers why do some shows lean into it so much more than others why did next gen and enterprise seem to lean into it less for example, than the original series in deep space nine i mean leaving aside whether voyager fudges it because they clone the whole ship well, I, I mean, I agree with like basically everything you said. I think it is because it, it makes us question our sense of self, um, like your unique identity, you know, your, the, your specialness of just being individual, you and like a doppelganger challenges all of that. And it kind of challenges what it means to be human and what it means to have a sense of self. I think it also, there's an aspect into in it, which is like, sort of two sides of uh, uh, two different natures because sometimes you can have quite competing sides to yourself and that also kind of questions about the sort of psychology of of humans and that also fits in very well with Star Trek because Star Trek is basically the you know like we've said before many times it's like the human adventure you know it's about exploring what it means to be human Mm. um, in various different ways and also like the idea of like a conscious and unconscious, you know, when you dream, um, like almost like this idea of like, you know, who are you when you're dreaming asleep? Are you, are you the same person that you are when you're awake and all that sort of thing, which I think fits in very well with Star Trek. Um, I guess with one of the reasons why I think next generation has slightly less is I think next generation maybe explores what it means to be human in other ways, in other narrative, in other narrative ways through um, sort of sociological ideas or through um, politics or through um, memory or time travel or whatever, you know, I I think maybe next generation has other stories, um, that it tells, that explores the idea of what it means to be human. Um, and maybe Enterprise, I mean, Enterprise had a shorter run. Maybe they would have had more doubles if they, uh, <laughs> if they had longer, more series. Um, 
and it, you know maybe enterprise is more about individualistic freedom and individual individualism um you know i felt like the the episode where they clone trip a very strange one that's probably the episode that is the most example of having a double uh, and i don't think it necessarily <laughs> works so well <laughs> Um, but you, you know what I mean? Like uh, maybe enterprise is more about exploring and adventure and less about these sort of, I don't know, sort of psychological ideas. That's interesting. I mean, maybe it's true thinking about it. Maybe next gen and enterprise are the least anguished of the Star Trek shows in some sense. I mean, in both of them, there's this sense of kind of optimism underpinning things you know, next gen, they're this great crew of brilliant people. You know, they're all great individuals. They're, they're, they're the kind of best of the best. Do you know what I mean? Enterprise. Okay. They, they use very mild swear words and now and then they get a little bit grumpy because they're a few hundred years earlier in time, but there's still that sense. They're pretty kind of squeaky clean. Um, there isn't that sense of shame. Maybe, maybe the characters on DS9 have more to be ashamed of. Uh, and therefore these kind of, existential crises can have a bit more bite if you know what I mean everyone has a past everyone has dark secrets everyone I, I mean literally every character on DS9 has has dark secrets from the past that are going to come back to haunt them the characters in next gen are not very haunted I suppose and, and nor are those in Enterprise but it is interestingly of course in season three that you get the episode similitude which is very anguished and I mean literally Scott Bakula's performance uh in that episode is, you know, almost unhinged at times. You know, he's got his stubble growing. He, he, he's kind of losing it from what he's being put through. And obviously that's a season where, you know, he tortures people. He murders people essentially in cold blood. He, you know, he, he crosses over these kind of moral lines many times. But I think this is the episode where you see him actually the most, uh, tormented by it in the moment because he, he is, you know, going down a path. He he is doing something that he knows is really wrong. Um and that he obviously feels terrible about. And he's doing it to someone who looks exactly like his best friend, you know. Um and you can see that kind of anguish. Um but I feel like that is quite an unusual mode for Enterprise to be in. Whereas something like DS9 and maybe to some extent even the original series, there's probably a bit more angst uh in the original series. There's a bit more sort of heartbreak and a bit more of these kind of difficult, sort of difficult emotional mess, whereas Next Gen and Enterprise are probably the cleanest of the shows uh, in that sense. And I would say Voyager is probably more in that line as well. Um, and maybe that's why when you do have these doubling stories in Voyager, they tend to be quite unproblematic. Yeah, they sort of end well, don't they? I mean, mm. I guess it doesn't end well. Well, apart in... from Course Oblivion, obviously it didn't yeah. end so well for them. Yeah, but they don't. True. But but then they keep them separate. That's the weird thing. So they clone the whole ship, but they they keep them totally sealed off to the extent that the message never even gets through to our Voyager. You know, there's there there is no interaction between the two uh, Voyagers um, ultimately. So before we end this podcast. Duncan, I wanted to ask you, have you actually ever met a doppelganger? Of yourself, obviously. I mean, have you met a doppelganger of anybody else? I don't think so. Um, 
Have I ever met a doppelganger of myself? I mean, no, you, you do get the weird thing. I mean, I'm sure you've had this of like when people say, oh, you, re- you look like, do you know what I mean? Like, who, who do you resemble? Who do you, um, look, looky, like, looky likeies? Uh, which I think is also an interesting thing when it comes to identity because, you know, obviously the ones that we like the sound of, we kind of latch on to. And the ones that we don't like the sound of, we sort of try very hard to forget. Uh, but no, I have not ever so far, um, encountered a, a a freakishly you know uh similar version of me i don't think what about you is there another clara out there so i actually have two doppelganger stories oh, okay. <laughs> um so the first one is um somebody did say that they saw someone that looked just like me now i've never met this person but one of my friends messaged me and said a very strange text message this was years ago and said you know why didn't you say hello to me are you okay? You know, did you, I just just wanted to know if I upset you, why are you ignoring me? And I was like, what? And they thought they'd seen me at Clapham Junction station and they'd called out to me and I turned around and looked at them. Um, Well, they called out my name and they said I turned out and looked at them. Obviously this person isn't me. So this person turning around and looking at them may have just, a lot of people turned around and looked because my friend called my name out quite loudly uh, and it was a crowded station. Uh, but they looked at, looked at her and they um, then turned around and walked away. And my friend said, I could have sworn I was like 99% sure it was you. It looked so much like you, wearing clothes that you would wear, walking like you would walk. And I was with somebody, supposedly, my doppelganger was with someone else. And my friend thought maybe I just didn't want whoever I was. I mean, to the point where I was with a man, my doppelganger, and my friend thought maybe I didn't want her to know I was with this man because obviously I have a partner. And I was like, I was not in Clapham Junction today. In fact, at the time, I wasn't even I wasn't even in London. I was in a completely different location. So it couldn't have been me. Uh, but it's a quite quite some convincing of my friend and she was really freaked out about it she was freaked out about it for like like years afterwards she would say do you remember that time i i, I saw you at Clapham junction i'm like but it was not me and she's like i know but it looked just like you and it, it moved like you um well because from her perspective it must both it it sets up first of all is it you and you're lying to her but also yes yeah. <laughs> are her own eyes not to be trusted do you know what i mean it sort of raises this question of like you know am i delusional somehow do you know what i mean like is it her grip on reality that's failing or is it or or are you sort of gaslighting her do you know what i mean or is it just one of these weird coincidences which so she was do happen, quite disturbed you know? by it she was mm. quite disturbed by it for quite a while and the, the thing is now when she looks back on it she says i don't know i never got that close to the person so she was at the very end of the train platform and she was about to go down the stairs into, if anyone's been to Clapham Junction, there's a tunnel underneath or, the, or, or underneath the station that you can basically travel from one platform to another. And she was about to go down the stairs and then she, she turned around, a lot of people turned around and then she went down the stairs. And so my friend thinks that maybe if she'd actually got close up and really looked this person close, close up, like within a metre or so, she might have seen that, that we were different and the other story is that many years ago, when I was actually living in Clapham, 
Um, I was shopping in the Asda in Clapham there, the Asda supermarket with my partner who was at the time my fiance. No, in fact, I think he was my boyfriend then. This guy is now my husband. <laughs> at the time we were, we were together anyway. Uh, um, I had a very committed relationship and we were shopping in Asda and he said, I'm just going to go get some bananas. And the banana, banana section, the fruit section was a couple of meters away. And I turned around. Uh, to look at something else or go down another aisle. And I came back and it couldn't have been more than about a couple of minutes. I don't know, three or four minutes. Came back and saw him standing there by the front of bananas, just kind of really looking at the bananas. Think I was thinking, how long? I mean, I think I was annoyed. I was like, how long does it take to pick some bananas? And I walked up and put my arms around his his shoulders, like around his neck, and said... And I, I quote exactly, because I'll never forget. Hey, baby, have you chosen your bananas yet? <laughs> and kissed and kissed him on the cheek. And kissed him on the cheek. It was kind of the neck stroke cheek. It's where, your, it's where your cheek meets your neck. Yeah. And felt this man stiffen, like absolutely stiffen, you know, like stiff as a board. Uh, and almost drop the basket he was holding. And I sort of was thinking... This is a strange reaction. I don't think I was even really thinking. You know, you just instantly. And also, I started to look at the back of his head a little bit. And his hair was a little bit longer than I remember. I don't know. It seems slightly curlier. I don't know. And then I sort of curled my head around and realized I'd actually put my arms around a complete stranger. And this was not my boyfriend. This was an, a complete strange man uh, who was now starting to have, I think, a panic attack. Who <laughs> <laughs> was basically starting to freak out. Because essentially, I had accidentally sexually assaulted him and <laughs> didn't choose a banana. I backed up and said, oh, I'm so sorry. I thought you were someone else. To which point, he didn't say anything. But evidently, I obviously thought he was somebody else. And then he kind of backed away from me and just walked really fast in the opposite direction. I turned around. It was like a little kind of like Clara turned around and there was my boyfriend standing there. <laughs> With behind bananas, me and he, right. and yeah with the bananas he'd chosen his bananas in timely fashion and he was like what the fuck are you doing <laughs> why are you kissing some strange man i was like i thought it was you and my partner said that looks nothing like me but i could have sworn it was him you know he they were both wearing similar colors they were both wearing jeans and trainers and similar jumpers they had the same color hair this is basically the plot of season two of fringe though right Clara? <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. It's exactly that. And the funny thing about it was then um, about five or 10 minutes later, we were walking around the, the supermarket, both of us a little shaken. Um, and we came across him again, coming at us from the other end of the shopping aisle. And he just took one look at us and turned around and walked the other way. Like he didn't, <laughs> like a real, ov- a real obvious about turn. Yeah. Like, I'm not even going to go near you. Um, and I think both of us felt even worse. But when I saw him head on, I realized there were different, you know, he was, they weren't identical, you know, but they were similar enough in Mm. height. I mean, my partner's not exactly tall for a man and he's quite slender. You know, I don't know. I just, it was the way he was standing, you know, I just, so. And did Ben see it as well? Yeah, yeah. Because that's the interesting question is like, did he, 
looking at this other guy, did he see it and and say yeah. sort of, oh yeah, fair enough, he does look quite like me, or or was he like, what are you mad? He looks nothing like me because I think there's also this sort of question, you know, is identity in the eye of the beholder? You know, I mean, what to what extent do we, I don't know, construct when we see someone we know or we think we know, how much of that's going on in our head as opposed to like what's going on in reality somehow. So he he didn't say he he just say like we don't look the same in our faces. We are, there are differences in our faces. He said, but he moves like me. Uh, okay. And that, that's the thing. It's like, I didn't, I was looking at the back of his, he, he was standing like Ben. He was moving like Ben. Um, and that, I mean, that's another thing as well, is it's not just the face, it's the mannerisms, it's the, and sometimes like he was saying about, you know, Nula and, you know, her great aunt, great aunt, um, yeah. that, you know, obviously there's a, resemblance of when the great aunt was at a certain age right it's 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 at that one point in time that the looks kind of converge but it's also in families it's mannerisms you know sometimes mm. you know you can laugh uh, or, or move or, or gesture with your hands in a way that a, a, you know a, a relative does like i mean my mum always says that um I laugh like my dad and my dad laughs like, laughs like his mum did. And his mum was the only one in the family to do, to throw a head back and laugh and kick her feet up like that. And that's exactly what my dad does when he finds something hilarious. There's the, the sort of little gestures or, or even just like, I'm thinking of, I mean, this is a very strange thing, but I have a, a mole on my right hand in exactly the same place that my mum has a mole. And she had, that's exactly the same place as her grandmother had that bowl. And it's like um, between our first, uh, my our first two fingers on our, on our right hand. And it's exactly, it's a, exactly the same place. And I mean, it's just, it's probably, it's probably nothing, but it's probably just a fate or whatever accident, but it's almost a little bit like, you don't have to look exactly the same to have these like repeated similarities, you know? And I guess in this case, even though this guy is not related to Ben, <laughs> They were just, you know. they, were, they were like walking and moving the same, you know, and they were yeah. the same, they were definitely the same height. So, and they were the same build. They could have swapped clothes. I mean, their clothes were practically the same. So, <laughs> but I've never lived it down. I've never lived it down. And I, I just, there's something really creepy about being physically intimate or close with a complete stranger. <laughs> You know, I'm like, oh, I feel like just withdrawing your hands from this individual being like, I can't believe I touched this complete stranger this way. It's just so wrong. See, it's that cringe, that cringe factor, cringe. Again, isn't it? Yeah. It's, the, it, it's this sort of uncertainty. It's like, do we ever know anyone? Uh, do, you know, are people who we think they are? Uh, and also this kind of, you know, like you're saying with these family uh, traits being passed down or whatever, it, it is exactly that that interaction between the familiar and the unfamiliar, isn't it? I think, and the, and the shock when something familiar suddenly, you know, something that you think is is your you know life partner suddenly turns out to be a complete stranger, um, <laughs> or vice versa. I suppose you you know it is it's exactly that kind of tension between what's familiar and what isn't. Yeah, it's 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 actually quite disturbing. <laughs> But it makes great sci-fi. <laughs> it does well, and you know, and these are similar. Uh, you know, what's what's out there and and unfamiliar. Uh, you could say, you know, Star Trek is all about finding the familiar in the unfamiliar, isn't it? You know, in the um, you know, in the the new life and the 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 great 
unexplored regions of space and so on. So it, it, maybe it's a perfect fit. Um, but anyway, it's been great, Clara, chatting to you today. Um, uh, unless I've been chatting to one of your, no doubt, many duplicates <laughs> or doppelgangers. Um, <laughs> if our listeners want to try at least to get in touch with the um, genuine article, uh, Clara Cook, what's the best way for them to do that online? So um, you could follow me or, or speak to me, tweet me on Twitter at Clara Jean MC. Um, I also run a podcast as well called The Tales We Tell, which is a podcast about women and gender and film, television and fiction. And we've never done an episode on female doppelgangers. That might be an exciting one to do. Orphan Black, good example. You absolutely have to do Orphan Black. I mean, as a just talking about like female oriented uh, TV or whatever. I mean, that is a show. It's a great show, but it's also just the most remarkable central performance, you know, of an actor doubling many different roles as all those clones, I think. That should yeah, definitely and, be on your list. And different female sort of roles in society and stuff. It, I think yeah. it would be good to cover. And you can find that on Twitter at The Tales Podcast. You're blended already. Right.